Welcome to the podcast, From Crisis to Connection. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'll be bringing the professional perspective. I'm Jody Stewart, unlicensed wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and neighbor, and I'll be bringing the regular everyday perspective. We are all about relationship recovery, and we'll tackle tough topics like infidelity, abuse, addiction, pornography, and betrayal trauma. We also focus on helping you build stronger connections in your most important relationships. So thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's good to be with you for another episode here. And I'm flying solo today. I'm up very early, actually, and so I let Jody sleep in. It's uh, 7 o'clock in the morning here, and I'm grateful to have on the East Coast, actually up in Canada, a friend and colleague of mine, Sathya Sam, who has been gracious enough to come here and, and join me on this episode. And I'll introduce him in just a second. But as always, I want to let you know about a free resource you can download immediately to help you in your recovery journey. If you're someone that has struggled and trying to overcome broken trust and trying to rebuild trust, or if you've been betrayed and you've lost the safety and trust in the relationship because of someone else's actions, I've got a free course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust that you can download using the link in the show notes. And you can get uh, immediate help, some foundational teachings and principles on how to rebuild trust and get you started right away today. So head into the show notes, click on that link, and we'll send that to you right away. So today I want to introduce my guest, Sathya Sam, is a coach and a speaker that helps men live with confidence and integrity. A recovered addict himself, he's the creator of Deep Clean, a research-based and Bible-backed system for overcoming pornography addiction, and he's the author of The Last Relapse. This work that he does has helped everyone from college students to medical doctors regain control of their lives and walk in greater levels of freedom. Based out of Toronto, Canada, Sathya is happily married and a diehard basketball fan, and if you don't mind, about to become a father for the first time, which yes, sir, that's right, is I'll just like the best news. So I'm just so excited for you and your wife to build your family. But thank you for joining me today, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Jeff. I always just very, very much a fan of your work and honored that I get to be a part of it today. Yep, likewise. I love the work you're doing, and he's had me on his side of his men's groups and on his podcast, and just always enjoy our conversations. And as, as far as what I would like to do today on this particular episode is, I think it could be so helpful for people to hear the stories and journeys of those that have worked through and overcome unwanted behaviors and, you know, shame and, and other kinds of struggles that, you know, seem to be stubborn and persistent and can be very, can feel so defeating when you're trying to do it. And a lot of times people will, you know, struggle by themselves for a long time or you know, just try and, and overcome these things and feel more lonely and isolated. And so I think hearing what has worked for someone else, and especially just knowing that they're not alone, I think is, is huge. And I think it's also helpful for those who have been betrayed to hear that people can heal, that there is hope. Yeah. Yeah. I think so many times it's easy to become, understandably, become cynical and, and bitter and, and skeptical that there's any hope or healing at all available to them or anyone else. And it's easy to generalize. And so I, I really do appreciate your willingness to be here. And, and I've invited you to, to talk about your particular, your story in particular and, and your journey. And then we'll, we'll lead into some other topics around healing and recovery. So I'll just let you take it from here, Sathya, if, you, if you're okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess to give a little bit of context. So I am a first generation Canadian. And my parents are both Indians, grew up in India. My mom actually grew up in Malaysia, but they immigrated to Canada and 
that con that cultural context is a little bit important for my story. It's also worth noting that my dad is a third generation pastor. So dad, granddad, and great granddad, all pastors as well. So church wow. was a big part of our upbringing. We went to a Christian school growing up. And I, I say all this to say that, you know, life was set up for us to make pretty good decisions in life. I'm not <laughs> the guy who had all this terrible trauma and that kind of thing. And everybody has their stuff. But but for me, I was actually quite fortunate, you know, to have a relatively stable home. That being said, I got exposed to pornography in the computer lab of my Christian school when I was 11 years old. Hmm. And that's sort of where this journey really begins. That was the year 2001. So this is sort of the advent of broadband internet. Smartphones aren't a thing, but things like pornography are starting to become certainly more accessible online. And I, um, I was relatively sheltered up until that point. So it's not like I saw this. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I went back to it. I was actually kind of disturbed by what I saw, very overwhelmed. And I didn't, nothing really happened after. Like I kind of went home that day and it was every ordinary day. I knew I had seen something that was kind of weird and inappropriate, but was just confused by the whole experience. But probably about a year or two later, when I started to hit puberty and develop, that seed had been planted, you know, and I was, I started to remember that. And that's when I started to kind of go back to pornography with more regularity. By the time I was in high school, it was a normal part of my life. I actually lost three friends to high school to suicide while I was in high school. And things like pornography just became easy vices, you know, to cope and to deal with everything. And then by the time I was in university, you know, it was just, it was my way of coping with the stress of pursuing an education and everything that sort of came with it. And so I was planning my days around it. I was relatively high functioning. So I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily like abstained from a lot of commitments and stuff, but I certainly wasn't as present and involved as I could have been. And I told myself I would stop whenever I wanted to. I collect classic kind of addict language. And then that day came. So in the middle of my degree is where I started to go on my own kind of faith journey. Like I mentioned, grew up in the church, but this is where I was starting to take things for myself or, or see what I really believed. And in that, I really decided to give my life to Jesus and, and become a committed Christian. And I knew the drill. I knew kind of what came with the territory. And so that meant I had to, you know, change my relationship with alcohol, maybe stop drinking altogether. I had to clean up my language and I need to stop watching pornography. And the first two things in that list were relatively easy to absolve. We're talking about a matter of days, weeks. I was really determined and very committed. I was, I was resolute in my decision. Mm-hmm. But no matter what I did, Jeff, I could not stop watching pornography. And so I would go maybe a couple of days, you know, maybe I'd white knuckle it enough to hit a week. But no matter how far I went, I always came back. And so I knew I needed help. You know, I was at least willing to get some help, but there wasn't much out there. There weren't great podcasts like yours or some of the resources you're providing. There weren't podcasts like mine at all either. And so I went online. Blogs were very popular back then. And a lot of the blogs that I could get my hands on around this stuff said, get an accountability partner and put on an internet filter. And so I still remember I was so excited. This I was like, this is gonna, this is it. I'm gonna knit this thing in the butt. I'm gonna put the filter on, like male brain, like I'm watching on the device. So if I block the device, I won't watch it. You know, the plan seemed relatively foolproof. And I did actually start to open up to some people as well, you know, and get an accountability partner. And and all of it was was helpful. It's not to say those things don't have their place, but I ultimately all it did was uh, extend the binge purge cycle. So yeah, rather right. than maybe struggling, you know, every four to seven days, it was now every 14 to 28 days. You know, I could I could push it out. But as you and I know, unless you really tackle the matters of the heart, there's no long-term kind of impact. And that was the case for me. So I was sort of just stuck in this slingshot thing, going back and forth, 
getting bouts of freedom and feeling like I had it figured out only to kind of crash and burn again. And that cycle persisted for about two years. And eventually I kind of realized, you know, there has to be more to this. And I started to do some more work. And at this time is where I was starting to see videos on YouTube and hearing from more things. And then I actually wound up in a program that really focused on the matters of the heart and addressing the more root causal kind of elements of an issue like this. And that's when my life really started to change. So I was starting to address trauma and things from the past. I was starting to realize how poor I had become at, uh, at processing emotions. And a lot of that was actually related to my high school experiences where the overwhelm of my friend's suicides was oh, yeah. too much. So I basically just shut down and it was just easier to not deal with emotions. And I had no idea how much that was driving my behavior. So it was, it was a collection of things. And then there was a lot of identity stuff as well. You know, a lot of self-talk and things about just how I viewed myself and, and how I equated myself. A lot of it was sort of proportioned to my abilities, how well I performed at something. And so I was very up and down in my confidence and my value as a person based on how well I was performing in whatever area of life it might have been. And all of those things were huge contributing factors to this addiction that I honestly had no clue about. And it was really eye-opening. It was certainly a, a bit of an arduous process to you know, work through trauma as it normally is. But those things in the context of a really supportive and loving community, that's where my life really started to turn around. And it wasn't overnight. It probably still took about another two, two and a half years. And in February 2016 is when I had my last relapse. And I had prayed two prayers during this recovery period. It was about five years altogether. My first prayer was, you know, whoever my wife is, God, keep her from me until I'm ready. You know, keep her from me until I can, if I'm not fully clean, at least, at least be heading in the right direction. And my second prayer was, God, if you can help me figure this out for myself, then I will share everything with the rest of the world and try to help as many other men as possible do the same. And so February 2016 was my last relapse. December 2018 is when I sort of started to take steps towards helping people and launch Deep Clean. And we've been going strong ever since. We've been able to help a lot of people. And a lot of it is centered on the things that I learned in that sort of five-year window of recovery that we now get to share with the world. So that's my story in a bit of a nutshell. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So many powerful elements there. And I, I if I can, I, I want to go back to a couple of things. I didn't want to interrupt you because it's, you know, there was such a nice, nice sort of flow and progression that I wanted people to hear. When you were growing up in a home where there was Christian values and teachings and so on, you know, one challenge that I see in my faith community as well is a lot of the times we don't know how to talk about, and I think it's better now in 2023 than it probably was back in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s when you were going through these initial experiences, but really yeah. about having healthy conversations around sexuality, around online you know, dangers and pornography, and, and even how to view yourself or your own desires and, and sexual maturing and things like that. Like how much of that was being talked about in your, in your environment, your home, your community? Yeah. I mean, virtually nothing. And between church culture, you know, we were conservative Christians and then Indian culture, there's a lot of kind of hush hush philosophies around this stuff. You know, you don't really talk about it. It's kind of uncomfortable and icky. Yeah. That was always sort of the vibe around it. I mean, in er the early 2000s, like conversations around devices were not necessarily a, a standard practice. I think my parents were a little bit shocked when they found out and they, they did find out I mean, at some point. I think I think I had left some files on the computer or something. Yeah. But interestingly enough, like their response was they installed some blocking software on the device. They yeah. didn't actually have a conversation with me. So that was sort of the condition at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, th I think it's interesting because I mean, I, I remember like, you know, again, 20 years ago or so that was that was sort of the, the best people understood at the time. Yeah. In terms of just, you know, stop the flow and everything will be fine. And 
Of course, we, we know that that's not a complete solution, even though somebody may feel like they want to put some monitoring software or use some of those tools. It certainly is not the final answer. But, you know, as an 11 year old kid in 2001, when you see this stuff and you're like, I didn't really know what to make of it. I hadn't hit really puberty yet. And, you know, but that seed was planted. I'm guessing you had no framework to make sense of what you had seen and what you were feeling or what was going on for you at all. No. And I I was totally blindsided. Like we were in the computer lab. I had a friend come up to me who was like, hey, check out this website. It was a very innocent sounding URL. Unfortunately, it's still a porn site today, but, but it was, I didn't like, I totally fell into it. It's not like I was even looking for it. Mm, There was really no malintent. So that was, yeah, it, it was just a blindsiding kind of experience, like just total, total shock. Yeah. A lot of parents, a lot of people over the years have asked me, you know, of course, we all want to protect our children and from all kinds of dangers, online content and pornography and fraudulent messages around sexuality and bodies and gender and all these yes. things. These are yes. things that, of course, people are very worried about that are, that are everywhere. But I think that sometimes the approach that is, is common is for, for parents to sort of do all this behind the scene blocking and protecting, but sort of hold their breath and hope that they have done enough and that their kids won't see anything. Mm-hmm. And really, my experience has been, I'm curious what, what you've seen as well with you know listening to the stories of the men you've worked with and and your program is that i think these i think open conversations around validating our god-given sexuality and yeah. really normalizing just the feelings and what our bodies do and and our our healthy desires that sometimes can get rerouted into unhealthy places but the but the core at the the essence of who we are and how we're built and what we long for is all good and coming from a great place and really teaching yeah. children at a younger age just how to work with those really powerful feelings, but never to send a signal that they're doing it wrong or doing something wrong by feeling those things. Oh man. Yeah. You nailed it. I mean, the problem is if you're silent, you know, if you don't have these conversations with your kids um, or you don't demonstrate to them that, yeah, like you said, these are God-given desires. It's okay to feel this way and to think this way and, and whatever. Typically what people do is they either, they either suppress or they completely rebel and they just go all for it, like hedonistic style. So mm-hmm. for me, that suppression was, was very real. It was like, it was, you're trying to stuff everything, everything inside. And as we know, that doesn't work. And, and then somehow you're supposed to just magically all turn it on again when you're married. You know, that was sort of like the message that was, I don't think that was ever said overtly, but that was sort of what was implied. And the problem with that is that you constantly live in shame. Yeah. So what we actually see, we've even had clients who come to us who are like, hey, I don't watch pornography anymore, but I still can't enjoy sex. I still find intimacy with my wife to be a real challenge. Like they still have all these paradigms around sexuality that are more or less suppression based. And so they've been able to, you know, curb or mitigate the behavior, but their actual approach to their own sexuality is still totally dysfunctional. So yeah, those dynamics are very real. And I would say the other side of it, like shame always tries to hide, right? So for me, like that meant deleting browser history, you know, back in the day when I would have my binges and stuff like that. Like we always try to sort of cover up the tracks and the trail. And what happens, you know, when, when you're young, it's like, okay, you cleared your browser history. Like the ripples of that are, are small. They're mostly personal and individual. But then as you become an adult and certainly as you get into a serious relationship and you get married, now that, that hiddenness and that, that behavioral pattern of covering up your tracks not only impacts you and keeps you stuck, it actually starts to deteriorate the trust in the marriage and the relationship. Right. And so that creates more intimacy dysfunction and the intimacy dysfunction furthers the porn use or the sexual misbehavior and you get, get caught in this vicious cycle. And fortunately, I'm, I'm going to guess this is true for you, but I know in my practice, 
It's certainly in our public facing messages, we really try to get the message across. It is better to confess than to get caught. But I, most of the guys that actually come to us and get help, unfortunately, they got caught. You know, they were hiding it. They thought one day it would magically change or it would never reach that point. And then it was too late. And so that those are the adverse effects that happen if people stay down the track of, you know, suppression and kind of living in that shame. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think because, you know, it's better to confess than, than to be caught. I think the reason that's so true is because the biggest injury in my experience with this in, in a committed relationship, I'm not talking about with children or adolescents. I mean, that's a different conversation. And so we'll kind of shift into an adult world here with, you know, married or committed people that are in, in a, a, you know, a monogamous relationship is that there is an understanding of transparency and openness and that, you know, we're going to be on the you know, we're going to be on a similar journey going to the same place. Yeah. And that comes with an expectation of, you know, that we both know roughly the same information about, especially around our, our sexual relationship or sexual connection. And so when that's been siphoned off into a secret world, it's interesting because a lot of the, a lot of the betrayed partners I work with are actually less shocked about the presence of pornography or sexual acting out behaviors, because at some level, I think we all can understand that. We all have bodies. Yes. We all are sexual beings. We all understand habits and appetites and struggles and you know, trying to keep things in check. The part that I think is the hardest to understand goes back to this idea of, of being caught, the, the, the cover-up, the hiding, the secrecy. It's almost like, you know, I thought you cared about me. I thought you, you know, I thought you would never be cruel you know, to me, I thought you would never edge me out or leave me in the dark, leave me behind. Like that yeah. seems to be the biggest injury where a lot of the times the reason that the person that's struggling is hiding it, they think that the biggest injury is going to be the fact that they have these, this uncontrolled appetite or these, these behaviors, these lines they've crossed. And as mm -hmm. problematic as that can be and harmful to a relationship, I certainly don't think that that's problem free by any stretch. But I do think that the biggest initial injury is the secrecy and the cover-up, which, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't come forward or you are struggling privately, you know, this is certainly an invitation to, to have the courage to open up and talk about your struggle, certainly with someone even other than your spouse initially, just to get it out and talk about it with the goal of eventually opening up and having full transparency in your relationship. But yeah, Cynthia, I agree. Like that to me is that that whole crux of it is really that the hiding, the cover up, the secrecy is is so painful and so punishing. Yeah. And the reason that most people don't take that leap of courage and confess it is because they're they're afraid they're gonna lose the marriage. They're afraid that, you know, mm -hmm. that like they your head goes to worst case scenario. And the people that we have been able to convince to have that conversation with their wife, they all come back and they're like, man, she handled it so well. Like I'm, I'm almost like a little bit shocked. Yeah. And it's not that it's all daisies and roses. I don't want to misrepresent this, but what they were expecting, like the big blowups and everything else, mm -hmm. it definitely happens, but it's rare. Um, typically, because you demonstrated integrity by confessing it, you can actually use an experience like that, even though it could be devastating and shocking. It can actually simultaneously put a deposit in the relationship. But all the things that guys dread, you know, the blow up and the wife wanting to separate or whatever, those things become a lot more likely when you get caught because it really, it's a withdrawal. It's a withdrawal from the relationship bank, if you will. And then you have the additional news of the addiction and the history and all that stuff. And it, it can really compound quite quickly. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's the best thing you can do for your relationship for the guys that are listening that are in that situation. I love that emphasis on the fact that doing something that, you know, you would think would be so terrifying and maybe even so damaging is can actually be a relationship deposit. And that's, 
And that's, that's exactly what I try and teach so many of the couples I work with, which is coming toward your partner, pulling them close, letting them know, letting them see more of you. Even if you just turn the volume down on what you're talking about, just the very act of coming towards somebody to be more seen really is calming. It really is. It's soothing. Even though there's this, of course, this, this other thing going on, which is, you know, shock and hurt and betrayal and trauma. Like you said, we don't want to minimize that the very real devastation that, that all of this can create. But we do know even from the, the research on disclosure, there have been uh, therapists and scientists that have studied, you know, things like disclosure and found that, you know, in over 90% of the cases where it's been done, both people report that they're glad they did it. And so, you wow. know, the, the odds are on your side to live in, in openness and in truth. It just really uh, does create a lot of calming and soothing. It's kind of like in horror movies, you know, it's like, it's in, we, we know, like we go to horror movies to be scared, but so much of what's scary in these movies, especially like old, you know, like Alfred Hitchcock movies and some of these older ones, it's not gore. It's what you don't see. It's what you don't know that yeah. we don't tolerate very well as humans. We like to know what's going on. We like to have information. We don't want to be in this world without any sort of orientation or understanding of where we are, what's going on. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I would say I, that's interesting. I didn't know there was research or like studies done on it, but it makes a lot of sense. And I would probably guess that the outcome for both partners, you know, the, the betrayed partner working through their, their betrayal and, the, you know, the addict and the person with the problematic behavior working through their stuff, I'd have to imagine the outcomes are a lot better when, you know, you're confessing it and, oh, yeah. and leading the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot easier. I think it sets a, I mean, I think it sets a precedent that, you know, they're committed to being open and that, that you know, relationally, the burden is going to be on, on them. They're going to carry that burden of opening up and leading out with honesty and so on, instead of the, the betrayed person always having to wonder, you know, did I ask the right question? Did I happen to catch him at the mm-hmm. right moment? Am I going to have to just wait till the next, you know, bomb drops? And so I think it sets a really healthy relational precedent that the betrayed partner can expect that there's a, a shared commitment to honesty and um, integrity. And I think that that, you know, that's harder to overcome when you're caught. Yeah. Hard, yeah. hard to prove that you were going to say something or that you, you know, you were planning on it, right? It's just a really hard thing to prove. So. Yeah, exactly. And one more thing I'll just add to this, because um, I know there's some other things you want to touch on, but the cool thing is that Again, and this is always hard for people when they're when they're stuck in a moment or leading up to a big conversation, but you're playing a long-term game. And so if you make that True. initial confession and that you say, this is the first of many times where I'm going to have a transparent conversation, I'm going to nip this in the bud. You know, our adage in our community is I'd rather confess a temptation than confess a mistake. And I think that's the thing that we can kind of get towards is a place where we're just naturally being proactive in our conversations about where we're at and what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that is what actually rebuilds trust. That's what prevents further relapses. And that's what's ultimately going to bring this thing back together. So I think it's important to people realize like confession is not a one and done. And you're obviously the, the pro at this, Jeff. But, you know, if people can have that perspective that this is a long term game, you know, and, and play the long game in this, then this is actually it's like a skill that you're starting to build. And you get to build that together. And that can be really powerful for the regeneration of the relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, confession has been a part of, you know, so many spiritual and religious traditions forever opening up and it's part of healing. It's just part of how we're built as humans. And it's been around 
forever, which is, you know, the antithesis of shame, which is about hiding and darkness and secrecy. And so what, however you practice it, opening up, and a lot of times people are like, well, how much is too much or how much should I share and be open, whatever. You know, that's probably a, a conversation that you ought to have with your partner and find out what do they want to know? What would be helpful for them in the relationship? I, I think that every couple has to self-determine, you know, for them, what is, you know, what is important in terms of feeling unified and feeling on the same page. And I, I don't think anybody can dictate, you know, any outsider can say, well, your relationship should have this information. So I think that's part of the, the conversation. So even if, you know, like, you know, I, I assume when you were dating your, your now wife, you know, I'm guessing you let out with opening up about your story and, and probably talked about your journey and where you're at and probably together at some level talked about just how you would share information or how things would look or what you'd want to know. I mean, I'm guessing that's all part of your journey. That's because you, you came into the relationship already working hard on a recovery process, right? Exactly. Yeah. I was fortunate to have some momentum yeah. uh, when I did meet, meet Shaloma. So like I mentioned, February 2016 was my last relapse. November 2016 is when we met. So I, not, not a long time, but you know, yeah. a good nine months there. But yeah, I had, I had learned, you know, I had learned my mistakes and the importance of having those honest conversations, being transparent. Yeah. And it took time to get there, obviously, you know, because it takes time to build the relationship. But yeah, we went into marriage with a really solid footing. She knew about everything. There's no hiding anything at that point. And even, you know, I've had days since that, like, maybe I'm not, I'm not clicking around or whatever, but even just my thoughts, I can feel the temptations. So I've just made that habit. Again, I'd rather confess a temptation than confess a mistake. And so just letting her know, hey, today's been a really tough day, really been feeling tempted. I think this is why, you know, I've been stressed out about a couple of things or had this conflict or whatever it might be. And just trying to shed some light on it, you know, before it becomes something worse. And that's been a really, really good practice for us. And I love that because I think that a lot of the times so many really good hearted, well-intentioned people that struggle. I mostly work with men in my work. I know you do too, who are struggling with these things. A lot of them believe that having a temptation is a huge mistake. And I, I want to reassure people like, look, no, like, you know, Christ was tempted. I mean, we temptation is just part of the human experience and there's no way around it. And, you know, keeping those things secretive and trying to pretend we're not tempted and, and acting as if we're somehow superhuman, I think is where we get into trouble. But I would want people to know like, you're opening up about the struggle, about the process is a very safe thing in a relationship. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's really well said. And I, I think what happens is you have scriptures like Matthew 5, 27, where Jesus says, you know, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And I think people mistake that with their God-given sexual desires, because what the messaging has been for so long is that everything sexual is bad and then you get married and suddenly it becomes good. And so I, th I think you hit the nail on the head. I think th this actually ties into what we discussed earlier, which is that it's important we understand that sexuality is God-given. It's God-designed. And it doesn't just become God-designed once you enter a marriage covenant. From day one, God designed you to be sexual. And it's our re responsibility to obviously learn how to, you know, engage in it appropriately. But yeah, you know, seeing somebody that's attractive or, or something like that, that's a godly experience. There's actually nothing inherently wrong with that. It's obviously what happens afterwards. That's what matters. And that's where the line, I suppose, could be crossed into lust, if you will. But I love what you said, like, you know, like Hebrews says, like Jesus was without sin or sorry, was uh, was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And so 
So we know then that it's it's actually okay to be tempted. It's it's not in of itself sinful. It's the response that really matters. And I think that's where I know for me, that's where I used to get caught in my head all the time. It's like, oh, I you know, you see someone that that's attractive or you have a thought and then you kind of start to self-deprecate, like you start to beat yourself up, like, no, don't have that thought. No, don't think that way. You know, look away. And you start to kind of get in your head and you end up channeling all this energy to try to avoid something that's not really even a problem in the first place. But because you've channeled all this energy now, it's become a bigger problem and your thoughts are probably working against you anyway. So it can become very self-defeating and very counterproductive. And so I, I think that I'm glad that we went here. I think it's important for people to know that, yeah, you have a million thoughts a day. You know, you kind of get to choose what you do with them. Mm-hmm. And that's where we decide whether or not it was, you know, appropriate or inappropriate. Right. And I think that a lot of a lot of initial confessions or disclosures are more of a behavioral nature. You know, I crossed this line. Mm-hmm. I looked at this thing. I went to this place, you know. But I think that as, as people further their, their recovery and their healing and their integrity, they recognize that so many of their disclosures going forward, you know, kind of longer term are more of the, you know, internal sort of more like my emotions and my, my internal struggles and my shame and my fears and temptations and those kinds of things, which really there should be a lot of room and space to be human and work through a lot of those feelings where nothing on the outside has changed or nothing looks different. It, you're, you're still carrying along in your same journey. You're pointed the same direction, but you're just internally working through stuff and opening up and having a place to talk about those things, whether that's in prayer or with, and certainly with, you know, a partner or a loved one or somebody that's safe really allows us to get our emotional balance and feel validated as a human being instead of as a, as a terrible person that is having these totally awful thought, you know, it's just that to me, I think that does so much more damage to pretend that somehow, or to believe that somehow um, having very human experiences makes us less than human. Yeah. And that's where like the, like, even I, I know you're offering that resource to rebuild trust. And I think that's where this stuff becomes so valuable because when mm-hmm. that is your goal, which is to, you know, rebuild trust in a relationship or whatever, these conversations just happen naturally. You, mm-hmm. know, you naturally just start to talk about the matters of the heart. That's right. Um, in the process, the beautiful thing is you nip things in the bud, you know, like when something is hidden in the dark, it's much more likely to fester, to evolve and to develop into something worse. When you bring something into the light, you know, you can actually kind of like, that's it. It's, it's out there. We've conversed about it and the pressure is off. The sting is off and you can continue to you know live your life and, and do your thing. And it's not such a big deal. So I think it's really important. I think sometimes what happens, though, is you have the thought, you have a temptation, you feel triggered, and then you worry that if I tell, you know, especially a spouse maybe who has been betrayed by you, you, you're nervous that if you tell them that you're going to make them all paranoid and concerned and that, you know, you're going to make things more complicated for them. So sometimes I think guys make that mistake of trying to protect their spouse, quote unquote, and not have these more candid conversations about thoughts and feelings and triggers and whatever. And obviously, you know, maybe detail levels and that kind of thing. Like there's some discretion that might be required. But I think in general, like, you know, our spouses are incredibly strong, competent and capable people. And they actually prefer that because as we said earlier, that actually communicates integrity. It communicates trust. And it's much more likely to continue to build that relationship in the direction that it's supposed to go. So I think for, you know, for guys who are listening, just just hear that, you know, that She's not going to judge you. You know, she's not going to freak out because you had a thought or because you were feeling tempted. 
it's actually so much better to just talk about those things and everybody should win when you do it well. Yeah. And especially when there is a pattern of openness, I think that maybe early on, there'll be some fear and some judgment and some worry around what are the parameters of this? Where is this going to go? Who is this person? Mm -hmm. Especially if there's been secrecy or hiding, or there's been behaviors that are outside the bounds of what they both had committed to when they made their vows or made covenants with each other. But I think over time, as your partner starts to get a sense of where your lines are and what bothers you and what really devastates you and, and the things that you're working on keeping in check, those conversations become a lot easier because now there's a shared understanding and both of you are really pulling for the same outcome, which is you know integrity and, and closeness and intimacy and full transparency and openness. And it's not this sort of, hey, I, I guess I have to open up to my probation officer wife or my you know, I have to like <laughs> check in because I'm in trouble and she's going to be mad at me or I have to go to the principal's office. Like that's not partnership. That's not intimacy. And the goal ultimately is to get out of that sort of one up, one down relationship and be able to work together as partners, just talking about the very human struggle of being a human, Yeah. but all inside the safety of a shared commitment, keeping lines, keeping fences up, and then having that space just to support each other. Because let's be honest, people that struggle with maybe unwanted, you know, let's say sexual temptations or emotions or things like that, that's not that different from struggling with other unwanted temptations or pulls or struggles in other areas, whether it's your phone yeah. or sometimes food or anger. There's just, there's a lot of things that we want to do or feel compelled or pushed or want to do just as, as humans that aren't good for us. And so I think as you, as you start to really level things out and recognize, okay, I've, I've set up these boundaries. I'm not crossing these lines. The fences are up. And now we're just talking about supporting each other through a world full of temptations and unwanted things. I think it becomes more of a shared journey at that point. Yeah, I think so too. We had a guy named Andrew Bauman on our podcast. Oh yeah. Um, have you, yeah, yeah. He's great. He wrote The Psychology of Porn and a couple other books. Yeah. And he he made a really great statement, which is, uh, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but my paraphrase, which is that, you know, recovery from sexual addiction and porn addiction at its basis is really changing your relationship with beauty. And the point he was making is that sometimes we distort things that God has designed that are beautiful, like sex. You know, we make them very objective and self-serving and all that kind of stuff. And when you recover, you begin to see things through a lens of beauty. And I know for me, that's really helped with the whole like triggers and temptations and stuff like mm. that. Even rather than labeling it, like, again, I'm not against the labels of triggering and temptation and whatever, but just asking myself, like, am I looking at this through the lens of beauty? Because sometimes I am. And in the past, I would beat myself up about it. But realizing, actually, this is healthy. Like, it's okay to, to see that other people are attractive. It's just important that I respond appropriately. And similarly, like all the stuff that we're talking about, you know, transparency with your spouse, confession, rebuilding trust, talking about temptations before they become mistakes. A lot of this is actually in that category of like, we're changing our concept of beauty here, where beauty is transparent, beauty is honoring, beauty is accepting of what is God made and God given. That's actually an incredible thing. It's an incredible place to be. And for me, it's, it's one of the goals that we set for our clients. You know, it, it's not something you can really understand at a very deep level early on. Maybe you can kind of kind of get the basis of it. Mm -hmm. But as you move further down recovery, that's something we really try to instill in our clients is changing that concept of beauty and seeing beauty in all things and letting that be the filter. Like, did I see this through a lens of beauty? 
And if you did, then appreciate the beauty that God has created, you know, and and the God himself who is beautiful. And if not, then, you know, course correct and adjust and have the conversations and whatever, and then make it your plan or your point next time to see that thing through a lens of beauty instead. And I, I know for me, that's been really helpful. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of partners that I've worked with, uh, betrayed partners, you know, they recognize, you know, when they really slow things down and, you know, there's a lot more safety, they can recognize that, you know, in the case of people, that there's beautiful people, men and women everywhere that were surrounded by people that are attractive or trying to be attractive. And that a lot of the times we can't control what we're attracted to, but we can just acknowledge, again, uh, to me, part of the beauty in terms of even expanding that definition further, the beauty is even just in being a human that has a lot of feelings and passions and even appetites, but recognizing that we need to keep those in check and be really honest about them. Yeah. I think it was uh, Shirley Glass wrote a book called Not Just Friends about emotional affairs. And she said that one of the biggest uh, protections against infidelity, especially emotional affairs, is being open with your partner about the people that you feel attracted to. Mm, and, yeah. you know, on its face, you would think like, oh, I could never open up about that or why would I ever? But what she says is that when you start to normalize chemistry, you start to normalize attraction, you start to normalize and recognize that we don't get to choose what we're attracted to. A lot of the times it's just like, well, I find that attractive. Like, you know, in the case of something more static, like a painting or whatever, it's like, well, that's beautiful to me. And somebody else is like, I wouldn't hang that up in my house, you know? But I think in terms of, you know, her point is, let's just normalize and talk about honestly, like without the shame, without the, the judgment of saying like, well, you shouldn't be attracted to anything or anyone else or anybody else except me and only me. And it's like, well, as humans, we notice things. We notice things, we pick up on things. And to be able to talk about those things from a safe place, from a place of trust and openness and reality without the judgment is actually quite liberating and totally decreases the likelihood that we're going to go toward that thing. Mm, yeah. And that's what, that's what she found in her work. And I thought that was really powerful as a uh, insulator against uh, infidelity. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it, like, it does take time probably to get there, right? To build that kind of trust where you can have those conversations and it, oh, doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't create that insecurity in your spouse or whatever, but it is... I mean, yeah, that, I, I know for me, I've had a couple experiences because, you know, my wife and I have some close friends and there's some friends uh, of ours where it's like, it's not even a physical attraction. It's just as you get to know somebody, emotional chemistry, I think was the word you used. That's brilliant. And yeah, being transparent about those things just makes it, it makes it so much easier. And I know for my wife, again, this is where like the long-term play is helpful. So my wife and I just celebrated four years of marriage, but we've been together for seven years. So we'll, let's call it seven years of like these regular, honest, transparent conversations, confessing temptations and talking about the, the parts of our heart on, on deeper levels and lots of honest, uh, honest and open conversations and conflicts and all that stuff. It means that when you start to have a conversation about this of, you know, hey, I find, find that person actually pretty attractive. And, you know, when we talk, I, I can feel a connection or whatever it is, however you're communicating it. That actually feels pretty normal if you've been building a, a culture that's having these transparent conversations mm -hmm. because there's so much security that's been established by them. So that's the benefit of doing some of the stuff that you teach on your podcast here and the, some of the stuff we've been talking about today is you actually start to build a really secure foundation that can handle these conversations. And it's not a big deal. And, and in fact, it actually just continues to build that secure foundation. And I, I think that's the beauty of all of this. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. 
Yeah, because early on, so many of the conversations, again, are about behaviors and, and reestablishing boundaries and, and trying to get clear on what are the shared commitments and safety. And so there's a lot of that early on. And so these conversations yes. that you and I were talking about, like you said, I l- appreciate that, is these are really the fruits of a long-term commitment to honesty and transparency and courage. And, you know, because to me, the alternative is to not say anything and both people living paralyzed by fear that the other person who they know is a human, the other person's going to be having these feelings and experiences, but when's that shoe going to drop? Instead of just embracing the fact that we're two people struggling to, you know, hear and feel and understand and make sense of our own experiences and just share that journey together. To me, that's a really beautiful goal long-term to have that kind of openness. And I love that you and your wife are are experiencing that and, and that you guys have that type of safety because you really don't have to be afraid anymore. It really drops yeah. the fear and all the anxiety, which, you know, we want to be relaxed in our relationships. We don't want to live <laughs> feeling afraid all the time. That's just not, I think, I don't think that's what marriage was designed for. It was just to leave us feeling trapped and afraid. So I, I love, and I think the openness is a way out of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't build trust without telling the truth, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's just, you know, you keep having these honest conversations and you start to get there and then you can build on it, you know? And it's, it's a much more fun stage of the relationship for sure when you can start to dream together and go after those things and they're not just nice ideas that feel good, but there's a, there's a secure foundation that you kind of get to build on together. It's, a, it's really, really fun. Well, Cynthia, it's so fun to hear your story and to talk about what's possible. And I love for people to see examples of this, especially as you enter this new chapter, um, as you welcome your, your first child and this, this really you know, beautiful expansion of your, your love and commitment to each other. You know, all of this, of course, is possible because of both of your courage and your willingness to look at these things and talk about them. And I, I want people to hear stories like this and understand that it doesn't have to just end in darkness and people being, you know, separate and living afraid, but that, that stepping into these things and walking toward light and openness and transparency really can produce beautiful fruit. So thank you so much for your willingness to come on here and share all this with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. It was my pleasure. So I'd love for people to know where they can find you and tell people what you're up to. Yeah. So the podcast is called Unleash the Man Within. And I think that'd be a great resource. We have, we actually do it five days a week. And so we take a lot of the questions that come out of our coaching calls and we form them into content because we know if our clients are asking them, then the general public is Mm. probably wondering them too. And then we have phenomenal guests like yourself on there. We've had you on there before. And I think mm-hmm. you and I have a, another interview coming up here soon. Yep. And so we, we bring experts ranging from, you know, relationships to neuroscience and faith and everything in between. So I'd love for people to go check that out. Uh, also very active on Instagram these days. So people can go find me over there as well. Sathya Me Sam is the handle. It's a bit tricky to spell, but maybe we can put that in the show notes. Uh, but the podcast, <laughs> sure. the Instagram, that would be great. Yeah, I would love to see people over there. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. I also have a tricky name, so I totally understand that, how to get people to (laughs) find you online when your name's kind of a mouthful. So wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, Unleash the Man Within podcast. And we'll put links to all that so people can find the great work that you're doing. And uh, I love that you, you know, you're keeping your promise to help and bless other people, you know, receive the the freedom and and peace that you've you've experienced. So wonderful. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, man. And and likewise, love the work you're doing. And uh, it's an honor to be a part of it. 